We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to the show, everyone. A new countdown starts today. We've kind of done it in the past, but I'm officially doing it today. 45 days until Christmas. It's about time you got with the program, Shira. Thank you for getting on the Christmas wave. Yes, and I'll add Hanukkah for the Jews out there so that, and maybe other, at other uh, holidays, just in case, you know, I want to make sure everyone feels included. <laughs> okay, Shears <laughs> being woke again. Uh, coming up on the show, how Trump could escape any previous crimes while out of office, uh, plus how to step up your journaling game during the pandemic. Stay tuned for that and much more on the show today. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. President-elect Joe Biden spoke earlier today and had this to say about President Trump's refusal to concede. Well, um, I just think it's an embarrassment, quite frankly. I I think it will not help the president's legacy. And uh, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's all going to come to fruition on January 20th. And between now and then, my hope and expectation is that the American people are, do know, do understand that there has been a transition. He also attacked the Trump administration for trying to end Obamacare, calling it cruel and needlessly divisive and saying that would leave 20 million Americans health coverage, quote, ripped away in the middle of the nation's worst pandemic in a century. Yo, Joe Biden was so cool, calm, and collective today. I am just Mm -hmm. obsessed with uh, how he is moving and how he is showing this country that he is going to be an amazing president because he's already started and he's not taking the bait. He's allowing people to ask him questions and he's answering them firmly with a smile on his face. And that is what I signed up for. Yeah, totally. It's very impressive and it makes me feel calm. That's uh, that's what I want right now. Some peace. Now, on the other side of the aisle, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo refused to acknowledge Joe Biden's victory as president-elect, saying this at the State Department today. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right, we're, we're ready. The, the world is watching what's taking place here. We're going to count all the votes. When the process is complete, there'll be electors selected. There's a process. The Constitution lays it out pretty clearly. The world should have every confidence that the transition necessary to make sure that the State Department is functional today successful today and successful with the president who's in office on January 20th, a minute afternoon, will also be successful. I went through a transition on the front and I've, I've been on the other side of this. I'm very confident that we will uh, do all the things that are necessary to make sure that the, the government, the United States government, will continue to perform its national security function as we go forward. Now, as you can imagine, Democrats and diplomats at the State Department reacted with disgust and anger, saying Pompeo's statements continue, quote, baseless and dangerous attacks. 
Now, President Trump's campaign filed a new lawsuit in a Pennsylvania federal court today seeking an injunction to block state officials from certifying the state's results of the 2020 election. Pennsylvania's Attorney General Josh Shapiro responded to the Trump campaign's latest filing, calling it, quote, another attempt to throw out legal votes and saying we will protect the laws of our Commonwealth and the will of the people. Man, this back and forth continues. I Uh, mean, will it ever end? It's exhausting. It honestly feels like a nightmare we haven't woke up from. (laughs) Really? We thought it was over, but no, that was that was you waking up in your nightmare. And uh, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so let's dive into the tea report. We got a lot to dive in with because Katy Perry is being slammed for telling fans to reach out to Trump supporting family members after election. So, you know, Katy Perry is taking some heat. Uh, the 36-year-old singer took to Twitter to reveal what she did um, the first thing after the results were called. Now, She says this, the first thing I did when the presidency was called is text and call my family members who do not agree and tell them I love them. And I'm here for them. Uh, She also said, hashtag family first, call your family today. Happy Sunday. Now, fans, however, weren't too happy with Perry's actions. Some uh, one user said, I'm not going to do that because those people voted against my basic human rights. But thanks so much for the tip, Katie. (laughs) Another one said. Said, uh, truth is, rich white people such as yourself were never at risk no matter who won this election. To you, this is more of a disagreement of opinions. To the rest of us, this election was a matter of life or death in many aspects. So no, I won't be calling my family to console them. So, uh, Cher, what do you think about this? Uh- I, I knew you were coming over to me. I was getting my responses ready. You know, I think this is, um, there can be two truths, as we say. I, I do think both sides of this, they're valid, right? I think that there are people fighting for their lives and there is no room and boundaries need to be set with the family members or friends that don't agree with the things that are basically support the rights of humanity. That said, <laughs> you know, and, and we all know where we stand on that. But I, I do think for others, it's not like they're going to cut those people off. They're still family. They're going to see them at family gatherings of the holidays. And this can also be a space to build bridges, hopefully, and continue conversations to possibly get them to that other side. And so I, I see room for both here. You know, I don't think it's an easy answer, to be honest. I think it's a really easy answer. And I think these celebrities are putting their foot in their mouth. I mean, I really agree with this one user that said this, you know, this election was not at a risk to a lot of these people. Like this election wasn't a risk for people who couldn't go out and just be themselves. And so for me, I do think, especially when it comes to queerness, you do have to sometimes give it a hard axe to certain family members. That's why chosen family is such a huge thing because if your own family members, like your blood, do not agree and they continue to make you feel uncomfortable, boundaries need to be set and you shouldn't have to, you know, deal with that. You shouldn't have to be like, oh, well, maybe one day we can come together. No, if someone is not going to accept you or someone's going to continue to vote against your human rights, then you got to let it go. No matter if they're family or not, honey, that's just what it is my opinion. Yeah, I think it's a personal choice. There are so many layers to it, right? And it might not be just easy like that to cut someone off. 
And so I, I could see how someone like Katy Perry is saying that, like, you know, maybe this is the time to create those conversations. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be for everyone. Right. It, I don't it really agree. Isn't. I don't agree at all. Just because I've had to even when it comes to my queerness and with my mother, I've had to tell her, if you don't accept me who I am, then you won't have me yeah. in your life. And so that's just something that you just won't understand. But. We do have to rap, and a lot of people won't understand it. Um, but what? continue the conversation online at LGT Show. Now, Prison Break friends, find out which star isn't coming back to the show. And yes, it may break your heart. That's coming up next hour in the Tea Report. Now, the Justice Department's unprecedented involvement in the election is raising a lot of red flags. More on that next with The Washington Post in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Yesterday, Attorney General William Barr gave federal prosecutors approval to pursue allegations of, quote, vote tabulation irregularities, which has drawn criticism for continuing to feed into unverified claims of massive election fraud pushed by President Trump and other conservatives. And back with us to dive in is national security reporter for The Washington Post, Devlin Barrett. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So is this pretty rare for an attorney general to step in like this and for the Justice Department to get involved? It is pretty rare in the sense that the rules of this process have been pretty well established for decades. And what the attorney general said in a late night memo is, you know what, I don't really like the rules. I think they're outdated. So I'm just going to tweak them a little. And what's extra rare about that is that he'd already had a conversation about this issue with other folks that the Justice Department were told. And those folks objected to him making this change. And those folks thought they had won that argument. And it turns out that he essentially decided to send the memo anyway. They're surprised. Yeah, I mean, William Barr has been kind of MIA lately. And after Trump's failed attempt to get coverage with Rudy Giuliani spearheading this, um, is this just Barr just trying to appease Trump at this point? It's really unclear exactly how much of Barr's motive is about making the president happy. But when you talk to election law experts and people who used to do Uh, some of this work in the Justice Department before this administration. What they'll tell you is that this rule change basically makes it possible for any U.S. attorney, if they wanted to, to hold a press conference similar to the one Rudy Giuliani held a few days ago at, you know, uh, the Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Very fancy, yes. (laughs) Yes. And just just throw out some allegations and say that they're investigating. What's interesting is in the first day since the memo, we haven't seen – uh, a U.S. attorney take him up publicly on the, on that the offer that basically the memo lays out, but it's early, and you know the Justice Department sometimes does things slowly, so it, it's super interesting, and I do think it's gonna it's gonna be the cause of more agita or this election timeline we're in is over. Yeah, and what is typically the process in involving public integrity prosecutors in the election crimes branch, and why is it an important path to take that it seems like they are just going around? Right. So part of the challenge here, right, is that oftentimes it's not that shocking that when someone loses an election, the loser might cry foul in some way. Right. That that happens fairly often. The, the point of having the, the rules as they used to exist is that anyone crying foul, that claim, that allegation would be examined and scrutinized by, you know, sort of a central office in the main uh, headquarters of the Justice Department where they could say, you know what, this really doesn't feel like much to us. We've seen this play before and it doesn't really pan out. Or they can say, you know what, this seems like there might be something to it. Let's go forward. It's it's the idea of creating a standard that you don't just sort of entice bad actors to manipulate you and make silly or non-rational arguments in public. 
Now, what the attorney general's memo does is it essentially pushes that decision out to, you know, dozens and dozens of U.S. attorney's offices. So you might get very different decisions made depending on who in these different parts of the country, these different states are looking at. Yeah, it seems to feed into an S show that continues from this administration. Uh, Again, we're talking to Devlin Barrett, national security reporter for The Washington Post. So hypothetically, could the DOJ actually come in and throw the election to the president? No, they really couldn't. That's one of the crazier things about this dynamic is that if you look at what the law actually allows DOJ to do, and the history of DOJ involvement in election investigations, they're really built to do two things. One, punish people who break election laws. But punishing someone, say you arrest someone for filing a bunch of bogus ballots, that doesn't invalidate those ballots. The election is still going to proceed uh, whether or not that person goes to jail or not. The other thing DOJ historically does and has the the legal authority to do is to basically force local jurisdictions to accept valid ballots that the locals would otherwise reject. And that's a very obvious part of American history, right? Suppressing black votes in the South. So that is what the federal law is designed to do. It is actually not designed or written to address the claim that the Trump folks are making, which is that extra democratic votes are magically appearing and being counted. It is not designed to knock ballots out of consideration. That's not what the federal government does. That's not what the Justice Department does. So even if you create a universe in which U.S. attorneys are making these accusations and, and putting this in the public space, that doesn't actually have give you a mechanism for changing any votes. Right. Mm. It does. And I think this is the reason why people are so upset. Some people are so upset with the attorney general. It does create more doubt and distrust of the results among the public. And that is the main source of criticism right now. Yeah. And in your piece, you mentioned a best and worst case scenario here. What should the American public be watching out for? I think it's sort of you have to apply your common sense, even if something is coming from the government. And the common sense question is, does this allegation of voter fraud or voter manipulation or counting manipulation does it make sense? Does it sound plausible? Does it does it sound meaningful? One judge recently looked at some of the Trump campaign's uh, allegations and said, this is hearsay on top of hearsay. None of this means anything. And I think in a, in a way, because the Trump campaign is making so many of these arguments in public, the American people are going to have to be their own kind of jury and say, okay, well, what is your evidence for that claim? And if the evidence doesn't seem like much, then I think, you know, the public can say, you know what, that's not a great argument. That doesn't make much sense to me or us. And so we're just not going to credit it that much. And that was national security reporter for The Washington Post, Devlin Barrett. He'll be joining us again in just a bit. But you can check out his book, October Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election Out Now. And coming up on the show, could Trump pardon himself for any crimes committed before or during his presidency? We discuss what could happen next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The big question on everyone's minds is when Trump does leave the White House, could he be liable for any crimes committed while there or prior to that? And back with us is lawyer and law professor Shane Inspector. Thanks again for being here. You're welcome. First, I think it's been hard to keep up with investigations of Trump and his family. But can you go through some of the ones right now that could come back and haunt him? Sure. Well, right now, we don't know of any pending federal investigations, and the Department of Justice does not comment on pending federal investigations. So there could be or could not be. We just don't know. At the state level, we do know about two pending investigations. 
One relates to the president's conduct in paying off his porn star friend. And he's got some exposure there for bank fraud and related crimes. That's in the hands of Cy Vance, the Manhattan County DA. Cy Vance also has an investigation pending against the president for making false bank statements and related crimes in relation to his financial statements that he utilized in obtaining credit from Deutsche Bank. That appears to be the nature of the second investigation that Vance has running. I think the president has real legal jeopardy, Manhattan, with Cy Vance. The president can't pardon himself for that stuff. Those are ongoing investigations and they are hot investigations. So what I found to be very interesting was that Trump reportedly planned to fire FBI Director Christopher A. Rye once the election ended. Why was he going to do that? Is this kind of like what we saw with Director James uh, B. Comey? Hey, you know what? It's like so many people that work for the president. If the guy doesn't do exactly what the president wants, when he wants it, then the president wants to fire him. Witness the firing yesterday of the defense secretary. Mm -hmm. And the FBI director has not been willing to be Trump's whipping boy. And so the president has considered firing him. He hasn't done so yet. And even if he did so, that would not stop whatever investigations might be going on. So with that said, and we're talking to law professor and lawyer Sheen Inspector, with the FBI being uh, hard on him, harder, what about the Justice Department and where does William Barr fit into this? William Barr seems to do the president's bidding wherever he possibly can. As an example of that was the memo he sent out last night to his underlings saying, go ahead and investigate possible crimes relating to the election. I think that Bill Barr is not going to encourage any investigations of the president during the president's term. Something could happen in that regard after the president leaves office. And then, of course, there's the issue about a possible pardon of the president. Mm -hmm. Which I want to know, have we seen past presidents sign their own pardons? Like, what has history shown us? No president has ever pardoned himself. Only one president has been pardoned. That was Richard Nixon, who was pardoned by his successor, Gerald Ford. It's an open question, Ryan, as to whether the president can pardon himself. The pardon power in the Constitution is absolute, but I don't think the founders envisioned presidents pardoning themselves. A lot of legal scholars think such a pardon would not hold up. I believe that it could hold up and it would be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, So what's the loophole here? Because many people, I think, are trying to navigate this right now because it seems like there are some things he's done possibly that have been illegal. But is he ever going to have to deal with the consequences of that? Uh, Perhaps not on a federal level, but not for the reasons I think you're suggesting. I think that if the president does pardon himself, he will probably escape criminal prosecution because the pardon would hold up. But even beyond that, I doubt the Biden Department of Justice is going to be looking for an opportunity to indict the president. They want to move on. They don't want to be distracted from their agenda. They don't want to get into a lot of partisan battles over the legacy of Donald Trump. Right. Donald Trump is is soon going to be yesterday's news, which is a wonderful thought, isn't it? Well, you know, Trump already knows so much highly classified information. I mean, he works closely. He's like buddies with these foreign entities and foreign government leaders. Is it too late to really even go down this path? Like, does like you said, does it really even kind of make sense? We should just move past it at this point. Well, I'm not saying he shouldn't be investigated. I'm not drawing a conclusion because I don't know what acts he may have committed that could give rise to criminal exposure. But I think that if it's a close call, 
the Biden Department of Justice is not going to want to indict him mm. for the reasons that I've said. Yeah. Yeah. So he's just going to get away with all of this. And what about in New York? I mean, another option is, could he just leave the country or at least hey, pardon his family? And But he's not pardoned. Hey, you know, Shira, on the issue about him getting away with it, as you just put it, he's not really getting away with it because mm-hmm. the man just lost his job. Okay. <laughs> he, he got just, fired. He just had a, he just had a resounding... Yeah, exactly right. He got fired by the American people. And there is a rough justice in that, isn't there? And for those of you or us who may not like the president, uh, you know, vengeance is kind of a tricky thing. And I think that we should think about moving on. I- I'm not mm. saying we should sweep anything under the rug. I'm just saying that unless something is clear and horrible, we should move on. Yeah, let's put that energy towards just making the country better. I, I agree. We have, so, we have so many problems. We have an economy in, in mm-hmm. the rut. You know, we have the coronavirus, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to need Republican votes, right? We need that Senate, the moderates, to be looking at Biden as being a healer and a unifier. And the degree to which he is perceived as going after the president unfairly will get in the way of that. Yeah. All right. Interesting take on all this. Thanks again for joining us. Okay, guys. That was lawyer and law professor Shannon Spector. Now, coming up, still haven't figured out how to cope with your anxiety? Well, how journaling made a comeback during the pandemic. That's next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Many people have started journaling during the pandemic. And as a result of this uptick, stationary companies have reported a bump in journal sales. One company, according to this article in Vox, said we're up 37.5% year on year in the notebook journal category. So what is it about journaling that is so helpful during this time? Because, you know, it's been around forever. This is nothing new. Yeah, I think what's interesting about this is, one, I feel like for me personally, I just started to kind of dive in into that world. Like I had friends mm-hmm. who talked about it um, and they would always let me know that it was very helpful, very therapeutic in a way where obviously everything just, just feels so cluttered and feels so mm-hmm. intense and, and having a journal allows you to kind of release all of that. So I've tried it. Am I someone who does it every single day? No, I don't think I can consider myself a dedicated journaler, but I think right now people are needing to express themselves, especially in the loneliest part of history that we're kind of all experiencing, which is quarantine. Oh, yeah. I mean, you said it. So I was also one of those people years ago that like I I love the idea of journaling. It seems very romantic. Right? It's like you go back to the like authors. dear diary. Yes. And like people make their movies and novels or, you know, you f- discover people's journals after they they die or something like that. Um, but I also had a hard time implementing it into my life. And then I read this book, which I recommend to everyone. It's like top of my list, The Artist's Way. And they implement in the book morning pages where it's an exercise where you need to write just like three pages stream of consciousness every day. And it actually does help with creativity, unloading just the mess in your head. You know what I mean? And it's, it's not about it making sense. Like I think what stops a lot of people from journaling is they think that they need to write something that once again, people are going to discover and make into some sort of epic movie or something in the future or book. I will say I did <laughs> right? enjoy um, shopping for journals. Like oh. I, I enjoyed picking out my specific journal that felt like was me. And I went to a bookstore yeah. and, you know, I think quarantine has kind of made me want to dive into reading more books or just writing more. And yeah, it's, it does feel like sometimes that I need a prompt 
prompt or I'm just kind of opening this book and now I'm just kind of like being rude to myself or some way, right? Or like kind of just nitpicking every little thing where I'm, I guess I'm releasing this stuff, but then it doesn't really feel like it's, it's helping me kind of get over the emotional, maybe like, I don't know the emotional part of it all, right? I think it's just mm. like, you don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're writing. And that for me, I, I need structure in some ways. And so prompts may be something that I should try to kind of help me figure that out. But yeah, journaling is such a needed thing. And I feel like we're all seeing that we have to get our emotions out. But I mean, therapy is also that as well. Oh, yeah. it's all, I mean, there's not one way to do it. And, and I, I love it. This person on this Reddit threads about journaling. There's actually a Reddit thread on journaling, guys. Mm. <laughs> they said, uh, I think journaling is like going through a closet bursting with clothes before you can even begin cleaning it. You have to dump all the stuff on the floor and just look at it. That's what you're doing in the beginning. And then someone that's else said, so don't, yeah, that's why I said like you're in the right direction. And then they said, so don't worry about doing it right or wrong. Your goal is just to look at your thoughts laid out instead of being cramped up in the head. Right. But I think because that's in, the, the thing with hobbies, though, you uh-huh. kind of want to be automatically really good at it. And that for me, that's something that's a hurdle that I'm trying to be like, well, you don't have to have it looking so beautifully. Like, you don't yeah, have to I have know. everything color coordinated and different. Like, it doesn't have to be that way. It just needs to kind of just be a moment where it's kind of like you can have your verbal throw up everywhere and it's just fine. Exactly. So throw up the, all that stuff in your head. Just let it out and see how you feel. Uh, We're big proponents of it, and we hope you can discover something from it as well. So coming up, Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, promoting someone's OnlyFans account. That wasn't on our 2020 bingo card. More details on that next in What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, what a Biden cabinet could look like. Okay. Yep. And the Love Bomb app that will help you better connect with friends and family virtually during the pandemic. We love some love here on Let's Go There. We need it. (laughs) Okay. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Former 2000 Democratic Vice President nominee and former Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman talked to Fox Business's Neil Cavuto on how this election process compares to the aftermath of the 2000 election between Bush and Gore. The election uh, that preceded where we are now this year was much more partisan and I'd say vicious (laughs) with the candidates calling each other uh, things that uh, Al Gore and George W. Bush never did. So the emotions are higher now, but the emotions are pretty high then. And I I think we've got to be fair uh, here and consistent, which is to say, America is a rule of law society (laughs) and people have legal rights. We solve conflicts in court, not in the streets. So President Trump has every right to take his case to court. And as Lieberman mentioned, we really don't have any resolution on this, at least until the electors will meet in their respective states on December 14th. I'm so like over us talking about Gore and Bush. Like, I feel like these are two totally different situations. I get why it's close nearby. And we even talked about it here on the show. But like, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of over it. People like context. People like going back in history. Once again, uh, news networks need stories to fill. And it, it also creates some sort of, once again, I hate to use this word again, context for people if there is a connection, because that's all we know. No, I get, I get the, I get the context of it and why bringing it up is so important. But I also think 
everything we're experiencing this year is unprecedented. So we really can't compare yep. or even look back, really. It just kind of feels like we have to just do what's right. And what that means is like figuring it out and getting Trump out of here if he's not going to concede the election. Totally. And what you said is really interesting, Ryan, because it is unprecedented. And so I think we cling on to whatever we know as just a form of like trying to wrap our heads around it and having a feeling like we can control what happens right? Exactly. when we can't, right? Now, let's move on to this really out there story. I gotta love this. Michael Cohen, you know, Trump's former lawyer, made his OnlyFans debut this week in a personalized video for New York City go-go boy gay adult film star Matthew Camp. The video was recorded through Cameo, which is this online platform where people um, can pay celebs to make personalized videos for them. And it was shared on Camp's OnlyFans and Twitter pages yesterday. And honestly, we're going to play this clip, but I'm not sure if Cohen even knew what OnlyFans was. Matthew Camp, Michael Cohen here, former personal attorney to President Donald J. Trump, now actually going to be former President Donald J. Trump. Listen, I just want to say how amazing Matthew Camp is uh, on OnlyFans Having a blast, enjoying every minute with you guys. Good luck. Love it. Stay safe. Stay COVID free. And again, OnlyFans having a blast with them. Enjoy. Now, good on Matthew Camp for getting very original and a, a, a unique way to promote his OnlyFans account with Cohen. It's This is kind of weird and hilarious. Yeah, I thought this was so funny. I saw this yesterday online right when the video was, I guess, posted or whatever Cohen did. It. But that's that's the thing about uh, these cameos. You can literally have them say whatever or shout out whatever, yeah. and you don't even know that he's literally shouting out gay porn. Iconic. <laughs> it is. And if you're wondering what Cohen charges for his cameo video, it's $100. Kind of makes me think, like, what, what which uh, cameo video should I get for you? Like, I've been thinking about it. That could mm, be really funny. Make I it worth it. You. Make it worth mm. it. All right. I need to think about it. Now let's move on. Uh, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has offered up to $1 million of his own campaign funds for any whistleblowers or tipsters who come forward with evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election. He said, I support President Trump's efforts to identify voter fraud in the election and his commitment to making sure that every legal vote is counted and every illegal vote is disqualified. He added that Trump's pursuit of voter fraud is not only essential to determine the outcome of this election, it is essential to maintain our democracy and restore faith in future elections. Yeah. Can't. Mm -hmm. Right. Patrick said that anyone who comes forward with evidence will receive a minimum $25,000 payment. Meanwhile, still, there is nothing as of yet that we have seen <laughs> they, have, that they have put forth to the public at least. Oh, God. This is so embarrassing. Right. And that was what's trending this hour. What is happening in entertainment news, Ryan? And before we move into the T-Report, Joe Biden said it best about Trump not conceding during his his press event today. Like, it is downright embarrassing. But anyway, uh-huh. let's move on to the T-Report, those pop culture moments that are trending right now. Wentworth Miller. Oh, my God. I don't know if y'all know who he is, but I do. If you love Prison Break, I know him from, like, the CW shows that he's been on. But he has basically ruled himself out of appearing in the sixth season of the much-loved drama Prison Break. He says he doesn't wish to play straight characters anymore as their stories have been told and told. 
So basically, here's the breakdown of this. There were four seasons of the Fox show between 2005 to 2008. A rebooted fifth season called Prison Break Resurrection that landed in 2017. And then a sixth season was in development. However, Wentworth is not going to be playing the lead. And he says he's not going to be involved. And he basically took to his Instagram to announce this decision very casually as he was talking about all of the positive and negative messages that he receives. Uh, of course, he rep- appreciates the former, but not the latter. Um, he then drops the prison break bomb saying, on a related note, I'm out of PB officially, not because of static on social media, although that has centered the issue. I just don't want to play straight characters. Um, their stories have been told and told, which is interesting. And honestly, before he came out, I think it was like 2013. Girl, I thought mm-hmm. he was straight. He, I mean, I mean, he's really good acting. <laughs> like, he's a really good actor. He just, you know, he's he's a hot, talented guy. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and it was cool to see him come out. And it was unexpected, I guess, for, yeah, some people. Because they put him in this, like, very straight category. Uh, yeah. But I appreciate this. I also feel like hearing this, it's like, this guy obviously doesn't need any money. Because he just uh, <laughs> dropped a huge gig. I mean, right? He clearly is not trying to uh, make any more money. He's just like, I'm over it. But anyway, that's your T-Report. Now, don't go anywhere. There's more T-Report coming up next hour. And guess what? There's a Grinch musical coming to NBC. Find out who's starring in it. Honey, it is going to be great. We're going to dive in. I love it. Okay, well, coming up, we are breaking down Biden's possible cabinet with Devlin Barrett from The Washington Post. That's next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The big names for Biden's cabinet have been thrown around as of late. Some names aren't as surprising like Pete Buttigieg and Abe Klobuchar and others like Rahm Emanuel could be divisive, according to AOC. And back with us is national security reporter for The Washington Post, Devlin Barrett. Uh, Devlin, thanks again for being with us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. So what's the importance of cabinet members and who makes up the cabinet? Just for like a little 101 for everyone. Sure. So the cabinet is essentially the highest ranking deputies to the president, and they run all of the government agencies around the president. So, for example, the secretary of defense, the attorney general, um, the secretary of the interior. You know, these are all important jobs that, that make huge decisions on U.S. policy, and they're all led by members of the cabinet and, you know, it's, it's, the, it's a group of humans you often see seated around the table with the president in the White House. And you, you pick those people based on two qualities, basically. One, who do you think can be confirmed by the Senate? Because the members of the cabinet, uh, by and large, need to be confirmed by the Senate. And two, how popular are these picks with your party, with your own voters? And so anytime you talk about potential uh, cabinet picks, what you're really talking about is how popular are these individuals with certain constituencies and with certain groups that will care greatly about, for example, who the defense secretary is or who the attorney general. Well, this seems like such a crucial moment for Joe Biden to bridge the gap between progressive and moderate Democrats. So do you think we'll see him have more progressive dims on his cabinet? That'll be a tough hurdle for him in some ways, because so far it looks like the odds of him having a Democratic controlled Senate where these folks would have to be confirmed that still seems like a reach, still possible because of the outstanding votes in Georgia that have to happen. But right now, he does not have a Democratic-controlled Senate. And without that, he's, gonna ha- he's probably going to have to make some accommodation to Republican interests in some form. Now, it's always possible he could, he could blow off those concerns and say, nope, just give my folks an up or down pick. 
But, you know, Mitch McConnell, the head of the Republican Senate, has shown very, a great deal of willingness to just vote down or not even vote at all on Democratic picks he doesn't like and he, he doesn't want to get give a vote. I think as long as the Republicans stay in charge of the Senate, which is still more or less what it seems to be, I think you're going to see a, a more cautious and less a fewer number of the sort of the progressive type of, of picks for those cabinet positions. Yeah, again, Devlin Barrett is with, with us, national security reporter for The Washington Post. It's been said that President-elect Joe Biden is seeking diverse cabinet members to look like America and leading federal departments. So who falls into that category that you're hearing? Well, there's a lot of folks. For one thing, I, I think you're going to see uh, a cabinet with a fair number of women in it. I think that was certainly as compared to the Trump administration. And I think, you know, so you mentioned Amy Klobuchar. I also think someone like Sally Yates is considered a top candidate to be the next attorney general. I think someone like Jay Johnson, who has been a senior official in the Obama administration, I think I think you could very well see him get picked for one of the big jobs, uh, depending on, you know, how Biden thinks that he can do in, in a Senate vote. So I think you will see a, a significantly more diverse cabinet, a set of cabinet picks than, than you saw in the Trump administration, right. much right. more akin to what the Obama administration tried to do in terms of diversity in the cabinet. Uh, but again, it's early. And, you know, one of the things that happened in the Obama administration that I'm very curious to see if it happens again, because I kind of doubt it, is Obama liked every now and then to pick a Republican for some of these jobs. His first defense secretary was a Republican holdover. I, I don't know that you'll see as much of that this time, even though Joe Biden was part of that administration. That became a big headache for um, the Obama administration. And I think Biden remembers those headaches. So I kind of expect he may not lean as heavily on trying to find Republicans for some of these jobs. So I want to talk about the big donors like Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Do they play into decisions like these as well? Like, is that anything to worry about? Um, they definitely have a voice. You know, what 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 donors usually get is an ear, is an ear and a seat at the table to at least say their piece. I think one of the things that that's always sort of, let's say, in a built-in contradiction of, of the donor world, is that they often the donors often think they have a better understanding of politics than the politicians do, and I think that's often a misunderstanding. Uh, you know, sometimes rich people are get used to being told how smart they are mm -hmm. all the time, and that can create a little bit of a disconnect. So donors get their say. I don't think very often you'll see donors get the last word on, on picks like this, because I think at the end of the day, donors don't really whip a lot of votes in the Senate. They can whip some. They, they can help on, on, on the margins, I think. But, you know, a donors, a, a Democratic donor, I'll put it this way. It's hard to imagine a Democratic donor who can move three Republican Senate votes on a cabinet, mm. which is sometimes what you're going to need. And so I think they'll have a say. I think they'll get to, you know, uh, suggest people and certainly push for people. But I think at the end of the day, the administration is going to have to decide who do they think they can get confirmed. Yeah, it's an inside job. Okay, well, Devlin Barrett, thanks again for being with us. Thanks a ton for having me. That was National Security Reporter for The Washington Post, Devlin Barrett. You can check out his book out now called October Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election. And coming up, building intimacy with friends and family during this time can be challenging, but a new app says they've got the solution for this problem and it only takes one minute per day. The founder of Love Bomb app joins us for that after this in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The Love Bomb app claims to be able to help you stay connected with friends and family in just one minute a day. The founder of the app, Mark Shapiro, joins us right now. Thanks for being here. 
Thank you for having me, Shira and Ryan. We, uh, well, I love, and I think Ryan loves stories like this too. You know, it's a nice change of pace from talking about politics in the election, <laughs> of course. Amen. So what, what inspired you to create this? Yeah, sure. So I've always been a very social person, uh, but it, it kind of the story starts four years ago. I was really fed up with social media. I had a kind of a love-hate relationship with it. I would delete it. I'd reinstall it. And even though I was connected to so many people, like, was I actually really connected to them? Like, I still struggle to keep in touch with people I cared about. And when my dad died four years ago, I was just so fed up that I'm like, I'm going to use social media different than anybody else. Why? Because I can and I want to see like, what else is possible with this tool, which has been around for 10 years, we're still figuring out how to use it. It's like, like a 10 to 15 year old kid is just figuring out who they are. I'm like, there's got to be something more to like social media and connecting with each other digitally that's currently available. So I started sending personalized video messages to all of my Facebook friends on their birthdays. And I have 3000 Facebook friends. So that's a lot of video messages. Uh, but I really quickly learned, uh, not only is it amazing to be the recipient of a video message, especially on your birthday when you get so many like HBD or happy birthday wall posts that don't really actually, you know, like touch the heart, a video really stands out. So people loved receiving them, but I also quickly realized how amazing it made me feel to show appreciation for people and to record these videos. And then kind of the gravy on top is that I kind of reignited a lot of relationships that had gone stale, deepened connections that I have with people, created a lot of like beautiful moments and new opportunities. And uh, that led me to um, create the Love Bomb app because uh, a lot of people had uh, either seen my TEDx talk about these birthday videos or told me like, Hey, Mark, I love that you send the videos. I could never do that. That would be way too vulnerable for me. But they wanted to like experience the magic and benefits of sending these uh, videos or like a daily kindness practice. So that's when I created Love Bomb. So what do you think is the balance when it comes to vulnerability? Because it often, especially now more than ever, that's hard for people to really achieve, right? And if people are uncomfortable, how do they move past that? How did you move past that? Yeah, sure. Well, I'd say... A great metaphor is like going to the gym. You know, when we are looking to, you know, strengthen our bodies, uh, we'll have to maybe go through a little pain to lift those weights. And if we're feeling a little like socially isolated from people that we care about, it requires that like same level of pushing through our own resistance, whether it's like a story we're telling ourselves that we don't want to be a burden on another person or that reaching out to somebody else is, you know, will take too much energy or we're scared of being rejected or we don't know what to say or we should do it later. You know, there's some friction there that, you know, once we kind of push through and are a little vulnerable, uh, everybody wins because giving our kind attention to another human is a gift. You know, like right now with coronavirus, we're all kind of uh, impacted socially. We can't do the same things socially that we could do 10 months ago. And so we're all feeling it. But when we hear from people that we care about and know that they're thinking about us, uh, it just makes everyone feel more connected and feel better. So that's uh, what the Love Bomb app can do. Love it. And we're talking to the founder of the Love Bomb app, Mark Shapiro, right now. And I, I guess I was going to ask why now? I mean, obviously it's timely with where we're at and how you want to create these connections virtually, but how much of a need is this right now? Yeah, well, 70% of people, Shira, have uh, reported feeling isolated or alone in the last year alone, which is probably not surprising. This is impacting... Most of the people that we know and love, our friends and family and our colleagues. 
And one thing that we often forget, Shira and Ryan, is that our social wellness has such a big impact on our health. Oftentimes we think about our mental health or our physical health, but there's been some studies that show that our social, the strength of our social ties actually has a greater impact on our longevity and overall, you know, health and well-being than sometimes even our nutrition and our daily exercise. So the way that I see it is, is really important that we focus not only on our mental and physical health and wellness, but also on our social wellness as well. So Love Bomb is essentially a social wellness tool that helps to build a daily habit of nurturing one or more important connection in your life every day in a way that feels good. So I think everyone's human. And sometimes when you feel like you're just being in like, I don't know, you're getting all these messages of positivity. It can feel sometimes a little tone deaf. So have you ever ran across that? Because we've talked about this idea of toxic positivity, right? In the middle mm-hmm. of a pandemic and especially the the holidays are coming around and telling someone or, you know, you're trying to have good intentions, but that could often be like the, the worst thing to really do. I think authenticity is probably the most important factor because if you're not authentic in delivering a message, naturally it's not going to be received so yeah. i do think it's, i do think it's important that we adhere to social cues and that we don't spam anyone but you know to me yeah. it's like there's so much relational space that's not being taken advantage of yeah and you know there's people that we let you know relationships go stagnant so it's just like even a text that says thinking of you have a great day you're not actually even asking for anything they don't even have to respond but just to know like oh this person you know is sending good vibes my way Frankly, I would love for everybody to be sending good vibes my way and cheering me on. So I think that that's really the key. It's just really got to be authentic and not feel spammy. Love it. Well, Mark Shapiro, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. This was fun. And again, the app is called Love Bomb. Hopefully, you know already after we've mentioned it a bunch of times, but hey, I'm always down to remind you. Now coming up, want to learn more about what dating may look like in 2021? Well, then continue hanging out with us because we are revealing that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. What could dating look like in 2021? Well, OkCupid did their first ever Future of Dating report, which features 2021 trend forecasts based on over 450 million answers to their matching questions. And are you ready, Ryan, for what they predicted? It's going to be interesting because 2020 has been one hell of a year. And so I know Mm -hmm. it's probably impacted a lot of people's answers to this. But I also wonder... After we're out of 2020, is 2021 really going to be that much different, especially if things kind of go back to normal? Well, yeah. How much does this change behaviors in the long term, right? Or is this just based on our reactions to what's happening right now? I think that's the the big answer we haven't figured out yet because we're not there yet, right? Uh, and and so, but definitely from this, it, it shows that people's dating styles have changed, which is not surprising. But here's what they discovered, okay? Singles want like-minded matches. Uh, 64% of more than 2 million users surveyed said they preferred a date that shares their political views. So you don't want to kill each other. You know, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that totally makes sense. I, I think that is something that is most definitely can be a deal breaker for me. Oh, yeah. And I would say that was something I'm very much aware of having common value systems. But I would say in the past, I knew those things, but they weren't as clear to me. Right. It's like I don't think politics came up as much in conversation or people were as you know involved even five years ago. 
right? Like I, I just personally feel, and maybe it's because I'm now doing this work, I'm more involved. And so it, it comes up more clearly from the get-go for me. Right? Um, and there's, yeah. there's no movement on it for me, at least. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think when, to be quite honest, your life probably wouldn't have been uh, impacted at all, really. So you really didn't have any reason to. But if someone who is like either a marginalized person or a person of color in this country, I think that's always at the top of their mind because there's cultural conversations that uh-huh. follow depending on who you're dating. And so I think it's kind of inherently always kind of a political thing. Yeah. So and I I've been, listen, I've been with white dudes who are very political and very involved and then other white dudes who uh not so much as we know uh so it's more now clear to me what i want and i think that's the difference uh then this isn't that surprising slower and more virtual than ever around almost a million people on the app believe it's important to have an emotional connection before a physical one and that's an indicator of more intentional quote slow dating so there's a trend of slow dating are you seeing that in your dating life ryan yeah yeah i mean (laughs) Slow dating can be kind of annoying in some ways because it just feels like it's the get to know you phase is like just taking forever. Um, And that's not really one of my favorite phases. Uh, But I do think it's crucial and it's needed. But sometimes you just want to have sex. What's wrong with that? I mean, that's the thing. I I think that there will always be people who have needs. Right. Uh, but I do think we're in a different time. Like you're not just going to do it with someone because of COVID. And that's the thing. You're, you need to build that trust and make sure that you feel like there there's a safety there because uh, you can't just casually date necessarily or casually have sex. I mean, at least I I wasn't doing that. Uh, I know you're not doing that. I'm sure there are people that are doing that, but it's more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, technically you were kind of casually having sex and then you got (laughs) with the person you were casually having sex with. Well, yeah, we weren't. There was no one else, though, I was with at that time. So So I don't know if that really works. Just because you somehow (laughs) fell into a relationship doesn't mean you're like the the prime example here. And I'm not using myself (laughs) as a prime example, but the dating, the the dating period changes. It's not like, you know, in the past you would be dating multiple people to figure out which one you like. Right. Right. Now it's like you can't really do that. You kind of need to say, okay, I'm going to go all in on this one. Right. And see if it works. And if it doesn't, hey, I'll I'll come back out to the dating scene. Okay. Now uh, coming up next, we got what's trending this hour. Stay tuned for that and more on Let's Go There. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, a COVID-19 vaccine could be coming very soon. What a 90% effective vaccine means and how it would actually work. That's right after this with our favorite infectious diseases expert, Dr. Michael Sag, joining us. Woo, because I think we got some good news, um, but I'm just still a little leery. Like, I'm not 100% excited about this possibility. And then also, you know, Trump and the administration is most definitely going to try to take credit for this, even though Mike Pence said that he was going on vacation. Like, he's on vacation when people are dying left and right. Cool. Oh, I'm I'm sure all of them do not want to be part of this disaster right now. He's like, peace. They are the disaster. They are the disaster. So you cannot be a part of it. Yeah. Well, he's trying obviously very hard to distance himself. Uh, But let's get into some what's trending this hour because we have some people that are not distancing themselves. That's for sure. Now, a follow up to Secretary of State Pompeo's remarks earlier today where he said there would be a smooth transition to a second term for Trump. Well, he appeared afterwards on Fox News with Brett Bayer, where he was asked if he was actually serious. Were you being serious there? 
uh, we'll have a smooth transition and we'll see what the people ultimately decided when all the votes have been cast. We have a process, Brett, the Constitution lays out how electors vote. It's a very detailed process laid out. We need to comply with all of that. And then I am very confident that we will have a good transition, uh, that we will make sure that whoever is in office on noon on January 20th has all the tools readily available so that we don't skip a beat with the capacity to keep Americans safe. That's what I was speaking to today. I think it's important for not only the American people, but the whole world, especially our adversaries, to know that we will achieve this in a way that's deeply consistent with the American tradition and keeps us all safe here at home. It makes no sense. It makes no sense, this idea. Like, I don't know why Republicans, and I asked this question earlier, I don't know why Republicans are willing to die on this hill for Trump. It's just like, get over it, move past it. If something does pop up, and obviously it's not popping up because they're already recounting across the country and Biden's actually doing better. It's just like, let's just move on and make sure there's a smooth transition for Joe Biden and his team. I mean, you got, you have to at this point. And Joe Biden feels very confident that they will. Like he answered that today and was like, I will. And so are they will. And so it's interesting. I don't know what's happening anymore. Well, yeah. And it's not just in, impacting the presidential race. It's actually impacting local elections too. Here's Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy speaking out about the current state of the country as the elections continue to be questioned and invalidated. Just up the road in Maryland, a Republican candidate by the name of Kim Klasick lost by 40 points and she is refusing to concede. She retweeted a post from President Trump in which he claimed that the election was stolen and she wrote, I beat my opponent on day of and in-person early voting along with absentee. However, 97,000 mail-in ballots were found in his favor, question mark. My colleagues, there is an epidemic of delusion that is spreading out from the White House and infecting the entire Republican party in the wake of this election. And it presents a real threat to this country. And that word he said resonated for a lot of people, uh, Ryan, delusional, really like that word. And that it's a sickness that is being basically infecting the entire Republican Party right now. It's most definitely delusional. I mean, there is someone um, I was reading last night, just scrolling. There are uh, people like Republicans who are who lost their race, but they are yep. most definitely saying, oh my God, I'm not going to concede. Every vote must be counted. And it's just like, are you kidding me? When you only got like 30,000 something votes and the your opponent who won got like over 200,000. It's just like, get a clue, please. Get a clue. Yeah, and he just mentioned uh, one instance that we played in the clip before, but he in the full clip, he talks about other instances where, yeah, there's local elections that were won by 40 to 70 points. And yet they are coming back saying, I refuse to concede. And so this isn't just happening with the president. It's something that's giving um, others, you know, the, uh, I guess, empowering them to do that as well. And it's going to make everything, not just all of us crazy, but it's really ruining the, the election process and the democratic process that has been set forward. Then speaking of which, Reuters and Ipsos, they have a poll that has revealed about 80% of Americans, including more than half of Republicans, say Biden won the presidential race. And uh, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? I hope there's less drama. 
Oh, for sure there's less drama. Actually, good news because my favorite, one of my favorite Christmas films is hitting the small screen. Let's dive into the T-Report, those pop culture moments that are trending. NBC is bringing the classic Dr. Seuss tale to life in a new musical holiday special airing December 9th. It will be a two-hour production titled Dr. Seuss, the, Gr- the Grinch Musical, and Glee alum, uh, alum Matthew Morrison will star as the Grinch, of course. He told the Today Show, while the pandemic presents some challenges in bringing the stage musical uh, to life, we are putting together a special show with some crazy, fun, imaginative things going on. So I think this is going to be like the first time this is kind of happening. You know, Broadway's obviously closed. It's happening in London where they're putting on the show. But this is the first time we're going to kind of start seeing theater productions again, right? And I'm really excited about it. And so it's going to air 8 p.m. December 9th on NBC. So check that out. Cute. I love a little holiday classic. I do too. I love The Grinch. You know, my favorite I guess Grinch has to be Jim Carrey from 2000. Like he was absolutely amazing. So Matthew has some big shoes to fill. Now let's move on because CBS, they announced a new diversity pledge Monday that will have a visible impact on its staple of reality shows. So all future casts will contain at least 50% of black, indigenous, and people of color. That means uh, shows like Survivor, Big Brother, and Love Island will be far more diverse starting with the 2021-2022 season. Um, If you don't know, CBS has been caught under fire basically a lot Um, in recent years for a lack of diversity. In 2017, for example, the network's entire new fall lineup consisted of six scripted shows, all starring men, five of which were white men. And so... They got some explaining to do, and that's most definitely a big thing when it came to Big Brother, especially this most recent season. And that is your tea report, honey. I gave you all your TV news that you need. I love it. Okay, coming up, Pfizer says its COVID-19 vaccine is 90% effective. What to know and when it might be available, that's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The American pharmaceutical giant Pfizer and the German biotech firm BioNTech reported yesterday in a press release that their joint COVID-19 vaccine is more than 90% effective at preventing infection. What does that actually mean? Well, back with us is infectious diseases expert, Dr. Michael Sag. Okay, Dr. Michael, is this promising or just a premature announcement? Well, this is a big deal. Uh, Assuming everything is billed, This is a game changer. This could be our way out of this horrible nightmare we've been experiencing in 2020. Let me explain a little bit about, just to fill in the context, because we've talked about vaccines a lot on this show before. Mm -hmm. So what we had said in the past is that there's multiple shots on goals, lots of vaccines, and they all show really good responses in terms of the immune system reacting to it. But we didn't know at that time whether it would be truly protective. And this study released yesterday says, huh, not only does it appear to be protective, it's really kick butt protective. It's 90%, which no one expected. Most vaccines, you look at 60 to 70%. This could be a real game changer, not just for the Pfizer vaccine, but for many other vaccines potentially, because they were all showing that same degree of immune response. And if that is the correlate, if that's the thing that tells us what translates into protection, we could be platinum 
a year from now? Well, here's the thing. You know, uh, Pfizer CEO Albert Burla uh, said in a statement, the first set of results from our phase three COVID-19 vaccine trial provides the initial evidence of our vaccine's ability to prevent COVID-19. Now, the key words there are initial evidence, which does not really translate into final results. So I'm, I'm still not sure if we should really be getting our hopes high because it still seems like it's a, it is a little bit uh, premature. Great point, and you're absolutely correct. And so we can parse the words a little bit, but what I would guess, and that underscore that word, I would guess that this is going to translate to some meaningful degree of protection. How much, that's what the final result will tell us. But I don't think we could have asked for a better start as far as signal. What I was frankly expecting 50% 50% protection, 60%, you know, as in terms, returns come in last week, one dribble, run dribble at a time. Yeah. This is more like a mother load of evidence in terms of outcome, but you're spot on. We do need to see the final results, not only in terms of whether this degree of protection is durable and lasts, but also the safety. We can't ignore that. Definitely. We're talking to infectious diseases expert, Dr. Michael Sag, about this new COVID-19 vaccine that was announced 90% effective. Well, Dr. Sag, if this vaccine actually works, this is kind of a two-parter here, is there still a possibility that symptoms could pop up and spread, even if they are mild? And who's the ideal candidate for a vaccine like this? Great questions. Um, I would say that um, the, the durability and how well it suppresses still has remained to be determined. But what I'm sensing is that it suppressed most of the symptoms for sure uh, in people who develop symptoms. And it might well, in my opinion, have suppressed infectivity as well. Well, that remains to be seen. Now, your other question is critical. Do we give this to the most vulnerable first, which is what I think all of our instincts would say, protect them, versus the younger super spreader who's not paying as much attention to what's going on and reduce the amount of total virus in the community. My personal preference would go to the vulnerable first because they literally can die. And that brings up one other critical point. Now that we see that the light at the end of the tunnel may well be an exit as opposed to a train coming at us, uh, that we actually can get out of this thing. Yeah. we now need to triple down on doing all the things we can to bridge this time between now and when the vaccine becomes available. Because to me, anyone who gets sick and dies of this from this point forward is a death that should have been prevented. Mm. So let's all get on this together. Let's bridge this. We have something to hope for, something to look for, a way out of this. Let's do this together. Uh, So, Dr. Sag, another complication with this vaccine is that this is a two-dose vaccine. So, uh, recipients will have to get two shots spaced about three weeks apart in order to get protection. With that type of, you know, situation, how would this even start being distributed? Because that just feels like that's a ton of vaccine. It's an extra barrier for sure. That second dose is, is really essential for this thing to work the right way. The people in the trials highly motivated to do that. People in the general public, we tend to forget to go back to get the second dose. That's one thing. And then when you talk about distribution, because this is a brand new class of vaccine, it has to be kept very cold throughout the entire process of from the manufacturing plant 
to the pharmacy or wherever it's going to be administered. Minus 80 degrees centigrade. That's really wow. cold, really cold. And that has to be maintained. So it has to stay on dry ice the entire time. Otherwise, it can denature. That's a fancy word for go bad or spoil. So we need to make sure that that is in place. Pfizer and Moderna, the two companies that are making these types of products, have already thought it through, but implementing it is just an extra hurdle. All right. Well, thank you again. It's always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me back. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We are wrapping up the show, as we always do, with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Now, I'm so excited for this one. Victoria Volkova is making history in Mexico as the first trans woman to make the cover of Playboy Mexico. And let me tell you, she is beautiful. Oh, she's gorgeous. Of course. I mean, I've never heard of her. And this is the first time that I'm actually seeing her. Um, But apparently she is, one, an amazing activist and advocate for trans rights. And she's just breaking barriers. So this is amazing. Yeah, she's actually a lifestyle and beauty influencer and YouTube personality in Mexico who's very popular. And she celebrated the milestone on Instagram saying this. And these words are very powerful. So I kind of want to read all of them. If you can just sit tight and listen and enjoy. She said this cover celebrates celebrates the different ways of being a woman, different ways of being beautiful, the different ways of exploring your sensuality, enjoying your process. She added that she hopes the cover makes people more curious to know each other, more curious to know what it is like to be a trans person, more curious about how trans people live in this country and in the world and what we have to go through to live a dignified life, to be respected, to earn a living, to earn the respect of others, to be heard and dignified, to get a job, to survive school, to survive in a society that does not turn to look at us or our problems. For a long time, I hated my body and hated being a trans woman, she says. She learned to love herself for who she is and see everything that makes me beautiful and valuable. Oh, just like such powerful words to share today. Yeah, I have to agree. And I think so many people, regardless if you're trans or not, can relate to the just loving yourself and feeling authentic and just showing up 100% you. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with this. And the cover slays. Yes, check her out, Victoria Volkova. Follow her on Instagram and you can see that uh, cover from Playboy Mexico. And finally, we've got another Yaz Queen for Adrian Tam, who's a 28-year-old gay Asian-American son of immigrants who defeated a leader of the Hawaii chapter of the Proud Boys, which is a far-right extremist group we've talked about, of course, on the show, and President Trump name-dropped during the first presidential debate. And he became the only openly LGBTQ person in Hawaii's legislator. Okay, look at, I mean, Barack Obama is from Hawaii. So honestly, I feel like that area is very progressive. I've never been to Hawaii, but I'm very excited to one day now come and find a man because clearly they're out there. Oh, they are. Well, Tam is a first-time candidate and he actually took 63% of the vote against Nicholas Oakes. Uh, And here is Tam talking to a local news station the night of his big win. Tonight, I think we send a really strong message that Hawaii works for everyone and not just a select handful of individuals. And that, you know, this campaign that is grassroots, that doesn't accept, that didn't accept any money from corporate lobbyists or fossil fuel industries can win. And that, you know, we are ready for a government that puts people over politics. So yeah, shout out to Adrian Tam. You get our Yaz Queen of the Day as well. Yes, queen. Love people, you know, really stepping it up to make a difference and taking action when it seems like it would be otherwise challenging or 
impossible, really. You know, I don't think at this point in what quarantine has probably proven to so many people that nothing is not impossible. <laughs> not, yes. not possible. You know, I think anything could be achieved. And um, I'm super excited for these folks that we featured in our Yes Queen proving that. And if you ever want to nominate someone for our Yes Queen of the day, just slide into our DMs at LGT show. And that does it for our show today. But we are back tomorrow. Uh, same time weekdays here on Channel Q live 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tomorrow, we're talking about how to keep pushing for change now that the election is over. You know, there might be some burnout happening. So how do you get yourself back up and running? Plus, as it's being brought to the Supreme Court, we look at the future of the Affordable Care Act. That is tomorrow. And of course, if you miss any of our shows or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. So join our podcast family. Just go to the radio.com app or wherever podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. Have a great night. See you tomorrow. Bye, y'all. Let's go there with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. Are you burnt out on politics? How to keep pushing for change now that the election is over. Plus, as it's being bought to the Supreme Court, we look at the future of the Affordable Care Act. Listen live weekdays, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the Radio.com app.